This episode of the Queen's Memory Podcast has been produced in English. If you'd like to listen in Tibetan, you can find that version in our podcast feed. You're listening to Season 3 of the Queen's Memory Podcast. My name is Jie Fei Yuan, and I'm the Queen's Memory Curator. In this season, our major minor voices, we feature stories from our neighbors of Asian descent in Queens, New York. Too often, these voices are deemed minor, as in, of a minority. But in our borough, these voices are a major force. One in four borough residents identifies as Asian American. The stories they tell reflect their ongoing struggles and triumphs. They are our stories, a vital part of who we are, and together they represent a snapshot of our ever-changing neighborhoods as they are now. This is Heidi Shen. I am Stella Koo. I'm Melody Tao. My name is Denzin Chokle, and I'm here in Regal Park in Queens, and this is where my story starts. For Tibetans in their native country and around the world, preserving the Tibetan language means preserving their culture. Since the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1959, these vital parts of Tibetan identity have been under grave threat. For the past six decades, Tibetan refugees have kept their culture alive in India, where they formed a democratic exile government once headed by the Dalai Lama. The U.S. Immigration Act of 1990 provided immigration visas to 1,000 of these refugees. Ever since, other exiled Tibetans have found their way to America and made homes away from home. In this episode, brought to you by our producer, Tenzin Tseton Chokle, we'll hear how the sizable Tibetan community in Queens has managed to keep their mother tongue alive. First up, a story about one of these first recipients of the 1,000 immigrant visas in 1990. Tenzin Doji, known as Tendor among his friends, lives in the neighborhood of Rigo Park with his wife and their two-year-old daughter. Tendor is pursuing a PhD in political science from Columbia University, and he also works for an organization called the Tibet Action Institute. They recently published a detailed report on how Tibetan children are being indoctrinated in colonial-style Chinese boarding schools in Tibet. For Tendor, this is personal. He was born in North India to Tibetan refugee parents who taught in one of the numerous refugee schools started by the Dalai Lama. Initially, yeah, these schools came to be in the 1960s, soon after His Holiness came to exile and, you know, after Chinese invasion of Tibet. Uh, his main concern was the education of children and the preservation of Tibetan culture and identity among these children so that one generation is able to pass on uh, the cultural linguistic identity to the next generation. In 1992, when Tendo was just 13, his parents packed their bags and left India to resettle in America. Tendo and his younger sister were left in the care of the school. Then in 1998, Tendo and his sister finally moved to the US. He was just 18 at the time and the family settled in Boston. 
A year after his arrival in the country, Thendo went on to study international relations at Brown University and later moved to New York to work for Students for Free Tibet, a grassroots organization working for the Tibetan Freedom Movement. I'll never forget the first day going to work in New York, coming down from Queens and, you know, getting out of the subway in Union Square. I walked all the way to Avenue B, uh, where the office was. And along the way, yeah, I just felt like, you know, this energy uh, in New York, which was so different from all the other places I had lived before. It seemed to me in that moment that, you know, New York was so diverse. The city didn't belong to any one group or any one person or any one category of people. So I really, in a strange way, I felt at home for the first time in my life. Because I grew up as an exile, as a refugee my whole life. You know, like we were stateless growing up. Tendo says it also helped a lot that his newfound home had a sizable close-knit population of Tibetans. At the time, there were around 10,000 Tibetans in the city, and sometimes as many as 5,000 or 50% of the population would show up for free Tibet rallies and events. And culturally, I think the Tibetans were automatically drawn to Queens, where within Queens, Jackson Heights ended up being kind of the epicenter of the action. So right now in Jackson Heights, you know, um, you would find some 20 Tibetan restaurants. In, in many of the restaurants in Jackson Heights, you can see menus that are not just in English, but also in Tibetan. So yeah, it's a really multi, not just multicultural, but multilingual or bilingual kind of community space in that sense. And it's, it's kind of become like a cultural capital for the Tibetan people. <laughs> this freedom to be bilingual is incredibly important for Tendor and other Tibetans and Queens, especially since the children back home are not being allowed to speak in their mother tongue. It's part of the indoctrination Tendor and his colleagues at the Tibet Action Institute have just reported on. The situation right now in Tibet, the reason why um, it's different because, you know, uh, Chinese government's policies in Tibet have always been brutal and, and uh, they've always been targeted at suppressing Tibetan identity, culture, uh, religion, tradition, right? Uh, but this time, it's a new phase. It's a new phase of acceleration and change uh, for the worse because they are targeting something quite different. In the 90s, they tried to economically bring development or industrialization to what they called the Western regions, including Xinjiang, East Turkestan, and Tibet. And the logic was that through developing Tibet economically, Tibetans would embrace a Chinese identity and shed behind their Tibetan identity. But that also didn't work, it failed. Uh, Tibetans, you know, <laughs> did not embrace Chinese identity. So now what's happening is, you know, after the uprising that we saw in Tibet in 2008, following that, the Chinese government has made a new policy of language replacement. The Tibetan uprising of 2008 was a series of protests and demonstrations over the Chinese government's mistreatment and persecution of the Tibetan people. 
Over a period of six to eight months, more than 200 protests were reported from different parts of Tibet and the Chinese government is accused of using excessive force to clamp down peaceful protesters. So now they are actually, um, you know, over the last 10 years, they have established a network of boarding schools for Tibetans. And in these boarding schools, enrollment is mandatory. So, you know, people might get the wrong idea from hearing the term boarding schools, because over here in America, you know, only rich people <laughs> go to boarding schools. But in Tibet, the kind of boarding schools that I'm talking about are colonial boarding schools whose main aim is to brainwash or indoctrinate the, uh, the children and fundamentally to alter the language in which they communicate. And once you end up in those schools, you are basically separated from your family. So on one level, you end up speaking and learning in Chinese. So you immediately start forgetting Tibetan as a mother tongue. On another level, you are spending the majority of your time at school and not at home, not with your parents. And one thing that's really disturbing over here is, you know, kids are not just cut off from their parents, they're also being cut off automatically from their grandparents. And that's really disturbing for the culture because so much of a cultural wealth of a people are transferred, not only from parents to children, but from grandparents to children. So I think, yeah, the, this is really, really dangerous. And the report that Tibet Action produced last month is basically focused on exposing this network of boarding schools in Tibet. According to this report, today nearly 80% of Tibetan children aged 6 to 18 are being forced into these schools, which are reminiscent of the brutal residential schools of the past for native children in the US and Canada that have made headlines lately. And while Tibetans inside Tibet face a threat to their language due to Chinese policies, Tibetans in exile face other kinds of challenges with regard to protecting their language just by virtue of being minorities in their respective host countries. In general, I think uh, preserving a language and keeping it alive in exile is extremely difficult, um, especially when you have such a small population in exile. And in India, at least, there is a cohesive community, uh, the exile Tibetan government based in Dharamsala uh, with His Holiness and its network of monastic institutions, educational institutions all across India. So I, I would say over the last 60 or 70 years, uh, the Tibetan government and the community has done a pretty phenomenal job preserving the language, preserving the culture. But over here in America, I think there are many additional structural challenges that people face, even though there are greater freedoms at our disposal. And, you know, when it comes to Tibetan Americans, you know, the population is actually very small. And then on top of that, the Tibetan language and the Uyghur language also, you know, our languages are under threat and targeted for eradication in its ancestral home. So Tibetans over here, I think, have this extra kind of burden or extra responsibility. So that's really why you will see Tibetan immigrants uh, spending, you know, a special amount of time worrying about how to pass on the language to our next generation. If you'd like to learn more about Chinese boarding schools in Tibet or read the full report created by the Tibet Action Institute, you can visit tibetaction.net or follow them on Twitter at TibetAction. 
While Tendor's work with the Institute brings to light the ongoing injustices in schools back home, this next segment focuses on those who are working at providing Tibetan language education right here in Queens. We are now here in the basement of the Tibetan Community Center in Woodside, Queens. Today, a few hundred Tibetan-American children have gathered for the weekend Tibetan language classes. There's only a few proper classrooms in this space, and to accommodate all the children, in the middle of the hall they have put up makeshift dividers to create extra rooms. In 1991, a Tibetan monk from India was sent to Hawaii by his monastery to work at a Tibetan Buddhist center. His name is Pema Doji. After spending a few years in Hawaii, he moved to New York where he started the weekend Tibetan language classes that are still going on at the community center today. Pema Doji is now in his 70s. I think we were only about a thousand to two thousand Tibetans in New York back then. I saw that our Tibetan children were becoming less and less Tibetan in ways that they spoke or conducted themselves. I noticed their attitude and way of thinking had also become very westernized, and it concerned me. I worried that if our children in free countries have difficulty remaining Tibetan, imagine what's happening inside Tibet. So I spoke about it to my monastery, and I was told I should do whatever I can to help the community. Then in 1996, I started the weekend language class. We had seven students in the beginning. Then a year later, the number increased to 60, and then to 100. It was difficult since we didn't have a place of our own. So on different weekends, the classes were held at different venues. Sometimes we were in Queens, sometimes in Manhattan. And to take off expenses to buy stationery and food, I had support from my monastery. These days, the weekend school has found a home at the newly established Tibetan Community Center in Woodside, Queens, and they have about 400 students ranging from ages 5 to 17. Our curriculum is based on the one designed by the Tibetan Department of Education in India, and our main focus right from the beginning has been on teaching Tibetan language, spoken and written. So it was just me when we first started, and then we had three teachers, and now we have around 30 teachers and volunteers working with us. Now I think we're in a good place, and it's not because of me, but because we have great support from the local Tibetan community. Takpa Ishi, a Tibetan from Eastern Tibet who now lives in Elmas, Queens, is one of the teachers at the weekend classes. He's among a small number of Tibetans who have managed to escape Tibet after the 2008 uprising. In between classes, he talks about the conditions back home. It is heartbreaking to hear these stories from inside Tibet, because right after the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1959, things were looking really bad. Then in the 1980s, things improved a little bit, but right now it seems like we are going back to the period around 1959, because the Chinese are shutting down Tibetan-run schools in Tibet. So far they have already shut down about 19 schools in my hometown, and some of them are well-known Tibetan schools. They have recently arrested 150 people just for possessing pictures of the Dalai Lama. And a few days ago, Tibetan writer Go Shirob was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. These are all Chinese attempts to destroy our language and culture. They are implementing all the policies they can think of to eliminate Tibetan identity, and we are in a dire situation. 
To counteract what's going on back home in Tibet, he says immigrant parents here need to play their part by preserving the Tibetan language at home. Generally, it's hard to preserve one's language in a foreign land. But in each and every Tibetan household, if the parents can start with teaching their children the importance of our language, culture and identity, that can give them a good head start. This is important because Tibetan children here do not have a lot of places outside of their homes to use their language, and it's difficult for them to understand its value if it's not even used at home. So parents can play a vital role in teaching the importance of our mother tongue to their children. If that is done in combination with what we provide here at the weekend class, we can successfully preserve our language. Besides the teachers at the community center in Woodside, there are others in Queens making efforts to preserve Tibetan culture. Rinche Doma was born in eastern Tibet, but fled the country when she was just 10 years old. Um, so it's not just my story, but it's a story of thousands of um, children, um, you know, who had the aspiration to pursue an education, a better life. Um, and especially for me, I think my parents envisioned a future where, you know, I can learn about my culture, history, you know, all of that on top of modern education. So looking back, I think when my parents decided to send me to India, I feel like they have been so brave and they took this risk a risk that could have changed my life in the other way around as well, right? It, it, it was really risky, especially crossing the border and all of that. But now I feel so grateful and I feel always privileged to got all this opportunity. And yeah, so in the beginning, it was obviously challenging for a 10-year-old to leave home forever and then kind of coming to a boarding school where you don't know anything. And it's a different country and the food, the climate, everything you have to adjust and adapt to it. But after that, like I matured so much when I left home. I kind of felt like, oh, now I am on my own and I need to do what I need to do. And I, the reason why I left home is because of education. So I focus my entire like energy on education. Um, and I didn't really like have time to do other things and miss home. Rinchen lived and studied in India for eight years. Then she studied in Norway and eventually made her way to Columbia University Teachers College, where she recently graduated with a degree in international education development. For someone from a family of farmers in Tibet who left home at the age of 10, Rinche has done extremely well for herself. She's now part of a group of Tibetan youngsters who run a coaching center called Yindiyi, which in English means yes, of course. Yindiyi Coaching Center was started by two of my colleagues um, in 2015. Um, all of us are from Tibet. We felt that there is a gap, not just learning Tibetan language and culture, but as one of the newest immigrant communities in the U.S., we Tibetans are struggling in many aspects. And education is a long-term investment, not just in one generation, but we know that it can impact the following generations to come. So what do we mean to be a Tibetan, especially the first generation um, students who are born in this country. How do we connect their uh, cultural identity back to their American identity? Because in our own journeys, in our lives, like we went through so many education systems, we changed place from one another, but there's always a sense of pride being Tibetan and 
being someone who can, you know, speak Tibetan. And so I always felt like there is groundedness, like you always feel that you have a strong sense of who you are. So we thought as a new immigrant refugee community in this country, it is essential for the young Tibetans to equip with proper resources, right? So we started off from a very small, like humble beginning and we're still like, you know, very small, but I feel like the impact that we had in the past six years is tremendous. As Tibetan immigrants like Rinchen, Thakpa, and Pemadoji do their best to maintain their distinct Tibetan language, culture, and identity, they also find themselves in a moment when Asian Americans from all backgrounds are coming together for collective activism. For some like Thendor, this has created an internal conflict between national and collective identity. Yeah, for, for me, I've had mixed relations and feelings about the term Asian American for a very long time, actually. Uh, when I first came to America and started college, there were Asian American festivals, Asian American associations and groups. I tried going to some of them, actually, initially. But then I found that these associations or festivals were Asian American in label, uh, but in terms of content, they were actually Chinese American. For people like me, you know, uh, Tibetan immigrants who came here as a political refugee, for many Tibetans, I think we had the same kind of shock or a feeling of discomfort. And besides, Asia is such a big place, uh, lots of different communities, lots of different countries. But since those early days, Tendor says his feelings about the term Asian American have changed people are starting to recognize that there is a lot of diversity within that category and it's become useful for taking collective action, especially in the past two years. But over the last two years, in America, that has changed. Anybody who looked a certain type of Asian <laughs> was in danger, right, all of a sudden. And you don't know when you're going to get attacked. You don't know when you're going to get abused, like whether it's verbal abuse or physical abuse. So anyway, all of us have been subject to that. Um, and that kind of treatment and injustice that we have passed through and struggled against over the last two years have given us some kind of a collective experience and a collective memory, a common cause. And that's why now I think on the political level, the term Asian American does make political sense in terms of uh, having help to build a foundation for the common struggle of people who have been discriminated uh, for a long time. Ultimately, even this tension between maintaining Tibetan identity and embracing the Asian American collective experience is cause for connection among Tibetan immigrants in Queens. In addition to his many other talents, Tendo is also a songwriter. And in his song, Old Friends, written in the mother tongue, he speaks to the bonds that tie Queens Tibetans together. For Queen's Memory Podcast, I am Tenzin Seden Chokle. Join us next time for more stories from our Queen's neighbors. The Queen's Memory Podcast is a production of the Queen's Memory Project. For full transcripts, show notes from this episode and past seasons, visit queensmemory.org forward slash podcast. This episode was produced by Tenzin Seden Chokle in conjunction with Anna Williams and Natalie Mailbrot. Mixing and editing by Corey Choi, 
with music composed by Elias Raven. Voiceover work by Tenzin Samo and Dan Harumi. Special thanks to the Tibetan Community of New York, Tibet Action Institute, Indaing Coaching Center, and Yudong Tongden. This podcast has been made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Democracy demands wisdom. The views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this episode are those of its creators and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of National Endowment for the Humanities, Queens Public Library, the City University of New York, or their employees. I'm Jie Fei Yuan. Listen with us next time on Queens Memory.